Well, good morning, Calvary Bible Church family. So wonderful to worship together, to fellowship together, to encourage one another, and now to turn uh, to the Lord's Word for instruction. I want to begin by just uh, giving praise to the Lord for the work of the Holy Spirit uh, last week uh, through Brother Jim West as he brought to us just a powerful message on Acts chapter 26 about being a spiritual fork in the road in the lives of other people. And I've just had numerous members, uh, both uh, talking to me and to other elders, just about the impact that message had in their lives. And I'm really excited to see that growing desire in the heart of so many members to have that spiritual impact wherever the Lord has placed you in life. And this morning, we're going to really continue that theme by going to a passage where Jesus brings Simon Peter to a key fork in the road in his life. A fork in the road where Peter had to choose either to go back to his old way of life or to follow Jesus on a new path that would eventually lead to his death as a martyr. Our text for this morning is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. And as you're turning to John chapter 21, I want to remind you that the Gospel of John begins with a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which begins with the phrase, in the beginning. And then it ends with an epilogue in chapter 21, which begins with the phrase, after these things. And in between the prologue and the epilogue is, of course, the narrative where we see the seven signs, the seven witnesses, and the seven statements that show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you can have life in His name. So we're now in that epilogue in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Why don't you stand uh, with me as I read John 21, verses 1 through 19. John chapter 21, verse 1 says, After these things, Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and He manifested Himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? 
knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You may be seated. There's a lot in this passage, but I want to direct your attention this morning to three lessons we can learn from the Lord's interaction with Simon Peter. In John 21, 1 through 19, the Lord is going to teach Peter and then through Peter to us three required reactions to the reality of the resurrection. Three required reactions to the reality of the resurrection. This is, as it says in verse 14, the third time that Jesus appears to the disciples, and he is going to teach Simon Peter and through Peter to us three reactions which are necessitated by the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. We're going to see the first required reaction to the reality of the resurrection in verses 1 through 14, which is this, focus on your new occupation. The reality of the resurrection requires us now to focus on our new occupation. What is your occupation? Well, according to Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador of the kingdom. According to Jesus Christ, you are his witness. According to Jesus Christ, you are his servant and you are a worshiper. His mission is now your occupation. And how the Lord provides your daily bread is really a secondary issue to that. In fact, Jesus called the disciples to be fishers of men and the only question is kind of, well, what lake does he have you fishing in? When I was in Colorado, my dad loves to fish, and we went one day to Shadow Mountain Reservoir, and the next day to Meadow Creek, and another day we went to Monarch Lake. Each of those were different lakes, but we were doing the same thing we were fishing. And likewise, you may be a fisher of men at Pfizer, or you may be a fisher of men in the second shift at Wendy's, or you may be a fisher of men in fourth hour at a high school or at a college somewhere. Wherever you are, you are a fisher of men. Your 
economic vocation and the other aspects of your life are merely the lake or the body of water or the sea where you are to fish, but your occupation is to be a fisher of men. Peter had to learn this lesson. After the Lord's first two appearances, he had told the disciples, go to Galilee and wait for me there. So they did that first part. They went to Galilee, but what we see here is that they didn't wait. Now, we know that the time period between the Lord's resurrection and his ascension was 40 days, but we don't know how much time elapsed between when the Lord said, go to Galilee, and when the disciples arrived there, and then when the Lord then appears to them. But it seems as if it was probably quite some period of time. And Peter, ever Mr. Patient, decides that he's waited long enough. And so in verse 3, he, he simply says, I'm going fishing. Going fishing. Now, this wasn't just fishing as a hobby or fishing to pass a few hours of time. This was a business, and this was Peter's former occupation. So when Jesus doesn't appear for some time, G Peter doesn't know what to do. And so he simply goes back to what is familiar to him. He goes back to his old way of life. Now there's nothing inherently sinful in making your living as a fisherman unless the Lord Jesus has called you to leave your nets and follow him and become a fisher of men, which is exactly what Jesus had told Peter and James and John and the others to do. Back in Matthew chapter 4, we see the Lord's calling to Peter and to the sons of Zebedee, James and John. In chapter 4, verse 18 of Matthew, it says, As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So now fast forward, this is after the resurrection, and you have the boat, you have the nets, you have Peter, and you have the sons of Zebedee, and what are they doing? They're going back to the nets and back to the boat. They're going back to what they knew, back to the familiar back to their former occupation. The problem is not that there's anything inherently wrong with making your living as a fisherman, but if you're going back to that when the Lord has called you to something different, then it is clear that you have lost focus. You have lost focus. Peter was settling for the former when he should be striving towards the new. He was going back to be a fisher of fish when the Lord had called him to be a fisher of men. He settled for the ordinary when God had called him to the extraordinary. He was, again, prioritizing the temporal over the eternal. He was prioritizing his inclinations over the Lord's calling. He lost focus, lost sight of his calling, lost sight of the fact that 
he was supposed to be fishing for men. You know, if the Lord didn't arrive in Galilee, what should Peter have been doing? He should have been telling the people in that area that he's seen the Lord. The Lord had already appeared twice. He should have been about his new occupation, which is to be a fisher of men. But he lost focus. So the Lord has to teach Peter and the others a lesson. And the first thing that he teaches them is this. There is no going back now. There's no going back, Peter. If you try to go back to your old occupation, to your old life, you will fail. You will catch nothing. You know, Peter and the others were good at fishing. I mean, you see a little glimpse of Peter's strength when he hauls 153 large fish out of the water by himself. This was a good fisherman. The sons of Zebedee were apparently so successful they had their own fishing business and owned their own boat, which was uncommon in the time. They knew what they were doing. They knew this trade. And yet, they fish all night and they catch nothing. Jesus had told them, look, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he, he meant it. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain and He's teaching them that. He's also teaching them another lesson, which is that there's nothing impossible with God. When they now follow the Lord's instructions, right? So he had given them instructions, go to Galilee and wait. They went to Galilee but didn't wait, so they did not follow his instructions. But then now he gives them a new instruction. Now cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and now they listen, and now they obey, and Immediately, they have this miraculous catch of fish, and the nets miraculously hold, even though their capacity was so greatly exceeded. Nothing is impossible with God, but you need to follow His instructions. I think the Lord is reminding them of the lesson He had taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33, which He said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. In other words, get your focus right. Get your focus on the kingdom, not on the things of this world. Focus on my priorities is what Jesus is saying. Keep your focus on that which is most important and the Lord will take care of the rest. We are to now focus on our new occupation. What is our new occupation? Well, we are said in Scripture to be an ambassador. I want to just remind you of something. The Word of God says you are an ambassador. The Word of God says you are a witness. That is who you are. Nowhere in the Scripture will you open it up and say you're a dentist or you know, you're a tradesman or whatever your economic vocation is. Interestingly enough, the scripture seems to have little interest in that. Not that it's unimportant. I spoke uh, last Sunday evening on the sanctity of work from Exodus chapters 36 through 39. It's not that your economic vocation is unimportant to the Lord, but that is not your primary occupation. Your primary occupation is to be a witness, to be an ambassador, and you need to keep your focus on that. Paul, by occupation, 
We see at times in his life he was a tent maker. But we don't think of that as his primary occupation because he was first and foremost a witness. We need to keep our focus. Focus on your new occupation. When you wake up on Tuesday morning, how do you think about yourself? Do you think of yourself, I am a witness who witnesses to tradesmen? Or do you think of yourself as a tradesman? Do you think of yourself, I am a witness who witnesses to engineers? Or do you think of yourself as just an engineer? Focus on your new occupation. Second, there's another required reaction to the reality of the resurrection in verses 15 through 17, and I think it's this. Feed your new flock. Focus on your new occupation and then feed your new flock. You know, one of the primary reasons John adds this epilogue is to let his readers know what happened to Peter. Remember, we left Peter in the narrative having denied the Lord. And so the readers naturally say, well, whatever happened to Peter? I mean, the Lord calls him to leave his nets. He follows the Lord and then he denies the Lord three times. What, what, what happens next to Peter? Did Jesus cast him away, forsake him, or was he restored? And the epilogue answers that question. He was restored. It's a glorious truth, a wondrous truth, and a comforting truth. And I chose those three words carefully. It's glorious because the restoration of Peter shows the glory of God's grace. That even a sin of the magnitude of Peter's betrayal can be forgiven, that God's grace is greater even than that, even than that heinous sin. It's wondrous because it shows the saving power of the cross. And it is comforting because if Jesus forgave and restored someone who denied him three times, as he faced the cross, then certainly he can forgive and restore you and I. He can restore us when we do similar things as Peter did. So if you're like Peter, you've stumbled, you've fallen, you've denied the Lord in word or deed, this passage should be comforting and it should be challenging to you. And I want you to notice Peter denies the Lord three times. And now the Lord comes to him and asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Look again at verses 15 through 17. I just want to read them again because they're so important. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, right? He's, they've eaten breakfast. Now the Lord looks directly at Peter in front of the other disciples and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know 
that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't ask Peter. He doesn't ask Peter, Peter, are you really sorry for what you did? He knew how sorry Peter was. Remember when Peter denies the Lord, the rooster crows, and the Lord at that time is being led away, and their eyes meet across the courtyard. The text says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. The Lord already knew how sorry Peter was, so he doesn't ask him that. He also doesn't ask him, what are you willing to do from now on? Are you willing now to risk your life for me? And what are you going to do to regain my trust, to prove your loyalty? The Lord doesn't ask that because as verse 18 says, he already knew that Peter would be faithful and loyal to him and would even go to a martyr's death. He doesn't ask him anything like that. He just asks him one simple question. Peter, do you love me? I want you to think of how simple that question is and yet how profound. Sometimes the greatest profundity is in the greatest simplicity. Peter, do you love me? And that's the question for you and me. Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, Jesus had said there's a way you can know. There's a evidence of love for him. John 14, verse 21, he says, He who has my commandment, commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. I want you to notice how different this is than the way a lot of modern Christians tend to think. You know, there is a ton of people, a ton of people who live a pretty wicked life when you look at it. But then they go to church on Sunday and, you know, I mean, if you gauged by their emotion, if you gauged by, how, by just the, the kind of passion with which they worship the Lord, you'd think, boy, this person really loves Jesus because look at the level of passion and the level of emotion with which they worship. But what's interesting is nowhere is that said to be the mark of the strength of your love for Christ. What Jesus says here is the mark. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Not the most emotional one. Not the one who talks the most or acts the most. The one who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. He says down in a couple of verses later, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. How do you know how much you love the Lord? Well, how well do you keep his commandments? That's how much you love him. I don't know about you, but that's convicting right away, isn't it? How well do I have and keep his commandments? That's the strength of my love for him.
That's why when you look at verse 15 back in John 21, Jesus asks the question and even adds a little specific phrase. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then he says, more than these. Do you love me more than these? Well, of course, that begs the question, what are the these? Do you love me more than these? What is he referring to? You know, some believe that it refers to the boats, to the nets, and the benefits of Peter's former occupation as a fisherman, right? You know, Peter, do you love me more than you know, these, the boats, the nets, fishing, all of that? I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to, and there's a grammatical reason, I think, that the word these, when he says, do you love me more than these, that word these is a masculine in Greek, and in Greek, they tend to match words with their antecedents or the things they're connected to by their gender, the gender of the words. And the word these is a masculine in Greek, but the words boat and fish, which appear earlier in the chapter, appear in the neuter. So there doesn't seem to be a grammatical match, a grammatical connection. So I don't think that these refers back to the boat or the nets or the fish. Other people think the word these refers to the other disciples and They think that because in verse 14, the word disciples appears in the plural masculine, so there does seem to be a grammatical match between disciples in verse 14 and these in verse 15. But I think the context kind of mitigates against that because there's nothing in the context to indicate that Peter was tempted to love the other disciples more than Christ. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we see frankly, the opposite, right? The disciples are always arguing with each other and competing with each other, debating with each other who's better and who's first and who will be the greatest, all of that. So how do we interpret the phrase these? Do you love me more than these? I think it's best to interpret the word these exactly as it sounds both in Greek, frankly, and in English, which is just a general term for everything else. I think Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than you love all these other things? Do you love me most? Do you love me more than all of this? Do you love me more than anything? Do you love me more than these? And that's the only thing the Lord asks him. Whether or not he loves him. Whether or not he loves him more than anyone or anything else. Why does Jesus ask this one question? Right? Think about it, right? You know, Peter denies the Lord. Well, you know, part of it we see there was a fear, right? So Jesus could have asked him, like, you know, Peter, do you trust me enough to not be afraid in the future? I mean, there's all kinds of things it seems like Jesus could have asked him, but Jesus asked him this one thing, do you love me? And I think there's a major lesson for us here, and that's this. What we love determines how we live. I want you to really lock that in. What we love determines how we live because we live for what we love. We live for what we love. So what we love determines how we live. Whatever you love the most will be what you devote your life to. Love money the most, devote your life to money. 
love the approval of people the most, you'll devote yourself to that. Love popularity, you'll devote yourself to that. Love a certain status, you'll devote yourself to that. Whatever you love is what you will live for. What we love determines how we live. And whatever you love the most is what you worship. It is your God. Functionally, it is your God. And whatever you love the most will be what you serve. So the question that Jesus is asking Peter is the key question he's asking you and me today, which is, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And that more than is hard. Because we love a lot of things. And we love a lot of people. Do you love me more than these? What is the truthful answer to that question? What's the, not the profession, but the reality in your heart and life? Do you really love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength? Do you love him more than anything or anyone else? I want to get really specific because the Lord Jesus does. Do you love Jesus more than your wife? Do you love Jesus more than your children? Do you love Jesus more than your parents? More than your friends? More than your house? More than your career? More than your comfort? I want you to listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. And by the way, when I read this, you're going to immediately recognize that only God could say what Jesus says here. If a mere man said what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, you'd be like, what? Imagine if I said what Jesus says here. What if I said to you this? If you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your children more than me, you're not worthy of me. That would be that would be unthinkable for any mere mortal to say. Because love of parents for children and children for parents is the highest of created loves, love amongst created beings. The only one who can say that your love for me must be supreme to the highest created love is the creator. And that is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You cannot elevate your parents who are cre the created being above their creator. Right? Romans 1 says that the problem of mankind is that we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. In other words, we're constantly putting created things above the creator. We're putting money or our parents or our children or our friends or our careers or whatever it is. We're putting created things above the creator. And Jesus says, you cannot do that. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. By the way, this sounds so very theoretical here. I have 
Hold on one second. Just thinking of one young lady in a persecuted context who I got a chance to meet and she had come to Christ a couple months earlier and was staying in the basement of the church that I was visiting because the moment she professed her faith in Christ, her entire family and every friend, everyone in the world she knew disowned her. And she told me, she said, well, Jesus said, if I, as hard as it is, I love my father and mother, love my brothers and sisters, love my friends, but Jesus said, he who, if I love them more than him, I'm not worthy of him. That's what he says. He says in verse 38, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Well, what, what is a cross? Cross was the most brutal form of execution. Saying, look, if you're not willing to deny yourself and be ready to die, you're not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The call of Christ is to lay down your life, to take everything and everyone else and lay it down in order to have Christ, to love him most. Do you love Jesus more than these? Next thing I want you to notice is that there's two terms for love used in the Greek text in verses 15 through 17. We see here the word agape, which refers to the supreme, self-sacrificial, self-giving, laying down your life kind of love. And that kind of love comes only from God, according to 1 John. But there's another term for love which appears in John 21, 15 through 17. That is the Greek term phileo, which is, refers to kind of the common love, part of common grace that family and friends can have for one another. Even an unbeliever can have phileo love for their family and friends. So you have Agape, a love which comes only from God and is the lay down your life love. And then you have phileo, which is brotherly love, which anyone can have and display. I want to reread the Lord's questions and Peter's answers, inserting the words agape and phileo where they appear in the Greek text. The Lord says, Peter, do you agape me more than these. By the way, the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Peter, when faced in that courtyard with a moment in which if he had confessed the Lord, he could have been killed. He had, in that moment, the opportunity to show agape love for Christ. But instead, he says, oh, I don't even know that guy. Right? So Jesus is drawing out the heart of the issue here. He says, Peter, do you agape me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Notice Peter's response. Jesus asked him, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. 
He knows he can't claim agape because his denials had proved he didn't have it. Peter, do you agape me? Second time. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Now notice the third time the Lord switches his terminology. Peter, do you even phileo me? You just told me twice that you have brotherly love for me. Is that even true? Peter, do you even phileo love me? Peter answers, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo love you. So twice Jesus asked Peter if he agape loves him, and twice Peter answers, yes, I phileo love you. And then the third time Jesus asked Peter if he even loves him with that human brotherly love. And it, the text says this grieved Peter. It grieved him not simply because the Lord asked him the third time the question, but because the Lord switched his terms and said, Peter, do you even really phileo love me? This grieved Peter because while he realized he didn't yet have supreme agape love for Christ, the willing to lay down your life love, he still thought that it was clear that he had brotherly phileo love. Now Jesus is in essence saying, Peter, are you even really my friend? Do you even have that lower earthly kind of love that unbelievers have and demonstrate? I mean, after all, right, even pagan soldiers in battle will lay down their lives for one another and you wouldn't even do that for me. Do you love me? Do you agape love me? Do you even phileo love me? That's the question the text is asking us. The question we need to ask ourselves as believers. You know, we can talk high and mighty about having supreme agape love for Christ. Christ, I, you know, if persecution comes, I'll lay down my life as a martyr. Yeah, but do you, will you give him your Tuesday? Sometimes our actions show that we struggle to even have phileo love for Christ. We talk about having agape love for Christ that includes all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but the reality is that we struggle to give the Lord even the most basic form of friendship, even the most basic level of love, phileo love. The Lord knew that's where Peter was at, and it is often where I'm at where you're at as well. You know, sometimes we treat the Lord a lot worse than unbelievers treat their friends. Well, what do we do when our love for Christ is weak? I think we can learn three things from Peter's response. The Lord is restoring Peter, and I think we can learn three things from how Peter responds to the Lord. First, Peter responded with humility. You know, before he denied the Lord, Peter was boastful. Even if everybody else leaves you, Lord, I won't. I'm willing to go to death for you. Boy, he was, you know, he was so sure of himself, so self-assured and self-confident. He was better and braver than everybody else. He's had that confidence shattered. He's been humbled. 
He doesn't even try to claim he has agape love for Christ. He just simply says, when Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter's like, yes, Lord. I phileo you. I at least have this lower love. So he admits that his that he has not attained to that higher love. He responds with humility. He acknowledges the reality. Notice also that Peter, though, responds with faith. Each time he answers, he begins by saying, Lord, so he's affirming who Christ is, and he says, Lord, you know. You know me. You know me better than I know myself. Back when I thought, I'll stand even if everyone else falls. Lord, you knew. You knew I would deny you. You knew I would deny you before the rooster crows. Lord, you know. You know all things. You know me. You know my heart. You are the one who knows. This is faith. It's faith in who Jesus is. Formerly, Peter had a lot of faith in himself. Now he's lost all his faith in himself, but you see his faith in Christ emerging. Lord, you know. It's not now that I know that I'll stand. It's, Lord, you know. You're the one who knows. So he responds with humility and he responds with faith. Notice also that he responds with resolve. Peter answers with humility, but he also answers with some, a good measure of resolve. When the Lord asks him if he loves him, the first thing he says is, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. He goes, he's like, yes, Lord. And then he goes, he's, he realized, well, I can't, I can't claim agape. But do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord. It's a phileo love, but I want it to be more. You see Peter's resolve because each of the three times, even when the Lord continues to ask him, and even when the Lord notches it down and says, do you even phileo me? Peter still says, yes, Lord. He's like the man who... Who, who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what Peter's doing here. Do you love me? Yes, but help me to love you more. Yes, I love you, but not as I should. Do You see his humility, his faith, and his resolve. And whenever we have fallen, as Peter did when he denied the Lord, our response as the Lord restores us should have those three elements, humility, faith, and resolve. We need, first of all, to humble ourselves, right? To acknowledge how low we really have gone. We need to acknowledge that we haven't loved the Lord with agape love, because if we did, right? He says, if you agape me, you'll keep my commandments. You've broken his commandments. You need to acknowledge that that shows a lack of agape love for Christ, but then you need to respond with faith, faith in Christ. No longer in yourself, but now in Christ. Faith in his finished work on the cross. Faith that his grace is greater than your sin. Faith that he knows the weakness of your love and loves you supremely anyway. You see, his agape never wavers. It's yours that's in question here. So have faith, not in your love for him, but his love for you. And then have resolve, a renewed resolve to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that you can say with Peter, yes, Lord, I know my faith is weak. I know my love is weak, but I want to know you and love you more. So respond to a fall when the Lord restores you with humility, with faith, and then with resolve. I think that's what 
Peter is showing us here and why he's given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an example to us. Well, that brings us to then the Lord's response to Peter. How does the Lord then respond as he's restoring Peter? What does he tell Peter to do? And there is a contrast in this passage between the fish and the sheep. Peter is just a little while earlier said, I'm going fishing. Now the Lord says to him, tend my sheep. You got to move in your mind, Peter, from a fisherman to a fisher of men. You've got to move from caring about fish to caring about my lambs, my sheep. Shepherd my sheep, tend my lambs. Both of these verbs describe what a shepherd does. He feeds the flock. He nurtures them. He protects them. He cares for them. He loves them. He leads them. Jesus is telling Peter basically the same thing that he had said to him when he called him three years earlier. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Peter, leave your former life behind you and devote the rest of your life to my flock, my lambs, feeding them, nurturing them, caring for them, binding up their wounds. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. Peter was an apostle, leading apostle. I'm not an apostle, so I guess this doesn't apply to me. Well, it is true, right, that we need to be careful about taking everything the Lord says to Peter and directly applying it to ourselves, but I think there is yet an application here because we are all part of the Lord's flock and he is the shepherd of the sheep and the Lord's heart is for his lambs to be well tended, well fed, cared for, found when they're lost, having their wounds bound up when they're suffering. Peter had an apostolic responsibility that we don't have. But we all, according to the New Testament, have a responsibility to care for one another. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. See, in this flock there's law. And that law is bear one another's burdens. Jesus had said in John 13.34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Right? So the mark of loving Christ is keeping his commands, and his command is to love one another. And so we must not only focus on our new occupation, but we must feed the Lord's lambs. Feed your new flock. Nurture and care for your new spiritual family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a third required reaction to the reality of the resurrection, and that's in verses 18 and 19, and that is simply this, follow your new Lord. Jesus says to Peter, truly I say to you, verse 18, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes, now this he said signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, 
follow me. I want you to just pause and think about how different this is than what you'll hear coming from many, many modern pulpits today. If you listen to modern pulpits, right, to the prosperity gospel preachers or the psychologized gospel preachers, you get the impression that Jesus is a rather pathetic salesman. He's kind of hawking things and trying to get you to buy. I can make your life easier if you'll do this. You'll get this if you'll do that. Follow Jesus and your career will take off. You'll be more successful. You'll be your most actualized you. You'll be filled with self-confidence, have a renewed ability, and have your best life right now. As someone wisely said, if your best life is now, you better be afraid of what's coming in the life to come. Believers, best life is not now. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. The scripture says, as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so will our comfort be. How different what the Lord says to Peter is from what most modern preachers are telling their congregations. Sadly, I think such men are peddling a different Jesus and a different gospel. The real Jesus said that the path which leads to life is a narrow path. And the real Jesus said that we must deny ourselves and take up a cross and follow him. What does he say to Peter here? He says to him, Peter, you can no longer go wherever you want. And in fact, when you're old, your hands will be stretched out. You'll be taken where you don't want to go, and you will die in order to glorify God. So follow me. Follow you where, Jesus, to death. That's what he's saying. Peter, I put before you, you want to go back to your old occupation, I'm putting before you a new path. It's the path to be a fisher of men, an ambassador of Christ, and I'm going to tell you where that path ends. It ends with you dying. A brutal death. Want to follow me? That's the decision. Eusebius, the early church historian, tells us in his book, Ecclesiastical History, section 3.1, that Peter was martyred by crucifixion. They were going to crucify him, and Peter tells his executioners that he feels unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus, and so he convinces them to crucify him upside down. Peter's journey ends hanging upside down on a Roman cross, dying in agony. That's what Jesus tells him, awaits him, and then he says, Peter, so follow me. Here we go, Peter, the road which leads to that. How different this is than what modern preachers are telling people. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. False teachers tell people, Jesus will pick up your career if you'll follow him. It's not about picking up a career, it's about picking up a cross. 
Nowhere does Jesus promise an easy life, an improved salary, or any other financial or egocentric perks for following him. He, he offers neither comfort nor success. In fact, he offers us his path. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One who laid down his life. So Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And then says, Peter, you're going to die, so follow me. Follow me no matter the cost. Follow me no matter what. Follow me to a martyr's death if that's how I sovereignly decide you can glorify my Father. In other words, I'm not buying your loyalty here, Peter. This is not a trade, easy, successful life for your loyalty. Oh, no. I'm asking you to do something else. I'm asking you to compare all the pleasures and comforts and riches and ease that can be found in this fallen world. Compare it to me and choose me. Leave it all behind and follow me. So the Lord taught Peter three lessons that day. He needed to focus on his new occupation. He needed to feed his new flock and he needed to follow his Lord even to death. Those are three required reactions to the reality of the resurrection. The fact that Jesus raised from the dead requires that we have this same response. And so the question for you and I is this, do you love Jesus? Do you love him more than all of these? And will you focus on your new occupation? Will you feed your new flock? Will you follow your Lord no matter what. Lord, that is the question before us. It's the question, Lord, that you've impressed upon me. Do I love you? Lord, as you ask us that question, our hearts like Peter are humbled. Our hearts like Peter ask that you would fill us with faith and trust in you and resolve. And Lord, we do respond as Peter did. Yes, Lord, you know that we love you. But we acknowledge, oh Lord, that we fall so short of the agape love that you displayed toward us. So we ask you to fill us with a love that can only come from you. Through your spirit, give us that self-denying, self-sacrificing, life-laying-down love so that we can be fishers of men and we can follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.